Um, on uh, our website, if you were to go to crossroadsbrooklyn.com, many of you are watching online, you're on that website right now. Um, but if you were to go to our website, um, you will notice that our sermons are posted. So every week, you know, we have a time where we teach the scriptures, and all of those teachings are available on our website dating back all the way to 2015. And so you can download those sermons, you can stream them, podcast them, and ever since we started doing video with uh, the pandemic, you can watch the video on YouTube now. Um, but what's cool is um, I upload those videos on Monday and, and those sermons on Monday morning, and the website that we upload that to, um, the host website, um, gives me access to where I can see uh, how many people listen to each sermon, where they're listening from, where the downloads are coming from. I can see all the statistics. And um, I say that we have a pretty modest amount of podcast listeners. We're not going viral anytime soon, uh, maybe one day. Uh, But uh, nevertheless, when I look at those statistics, uh, there's one sermon that just stands out to me. Um, It is, uh, there is one sermon that is far and away our most listened to, most downloaded sermon over the years is simply titled Depression. Um, I preached that sermon six years ago. And yet it still remains as one of our most downloaded resources every single month. And what that tells me is that with actual data, we know that people are hurting. People are Googling depression. What does the Bible say about depression? Um, People are desperate for a word to encourage them in their sadness. And we've been in a sermon series where we've been studying the Psalms all summer And it's called How to Deal with How You Feel. And we've looked at all these different emotions that we experience in life. And what do the Psalms teach us about how to pray what we feel? And today's sermon is from Psalm 42, and it's on the theme of sadness and how to pray our sadness, how to deal with our sadness, our depression, our sorrow, our tears. And sadness can take all types of forms in our lives. We can be sad for small reasons, We can be sad because our team lost. Um, We can be sad because, you know, the milkshake machine at McDonald's is down. And we can be sad for small reasons, but we can also be sad for some big, very big reasons. Um, Sadness can be low grade. It can be the blues. It can be melancholy or sadness can become full on depression. And, but nevertheless, no matter what degree of sadness we all feel, we all experience sadness multiple times throughout our lives. Uh, many of you, um, if, at least if you're American, if you grew up in America, you may be familiar with the paintings, with the art of Thomas Kincaid. Anybody know the name Thomas Kincaid? Thomas Kincaid was called the painter of light. Um, you, can find, you used to be able to find his work in uh, places like prints of his artwork in places like Hallmark stores. You guys remember those? Uh, those used to exist. Uh, Christian bookstores, those used to exist. It's hard to find one of those these days, but those are the sort of places that sold Thomas Kincaid paintings. It's estimated that one out of 20 American households is dis- displays a print of Thomas Kincaid's work. Um, And so, I mean, needless to say, he was massively, massively commercially successful. And although, and even though he was commercially successful in this way, art critics never praised his work. Uh, They looked down on him as kitschy, as lowbrow, as kind of mass-produced. He never got the respect um, that many artists get in the art world. Um, But his paintings 
Um, do we have one up here? Yeah, this is pretty typical of Thomas Kincaid. Uh, his paintings were always of serene, peaceful, small town environments, uh, usually cottages, cottages um, with lots of light and pastel, and they're always happy, like it just looks happy. He was known for these peaceful, serene paintings, uh, but if you know anything about Thomas Kincaid, you know that his life was everything but peaceful and serene. Uh, Thomas Kincaid uh, painted paintings like this, but he battled throughout his entire life severe depression. He grossly abused alcohol and drugs. He was abusive to his wife. And in 2012, he died from an overdose of a cocktail of alcohol and prescription drugs. And one writer in an article titled The Drunken Downfall of America's Favorite Painter said, who could have imagined that behind so many contented visions of peace, harmony, and nauseating goodness lay just another story of deception, disappointment, and depravity fueled by those ever-ready stooges, Valium and alcohol. And you go, whoa, that's harsh of somebody to say about his work. Well, Thomas Kincaid said this about his own work. He said, yeah, my paintings, it's not the world we live in. It's the world we wished we lived in. People wish they could find that stream, that cabin in the woods. He said, it's the world we wish we lived in. See, behind all the beauty and the serenity of Thomas Kincaid's work was a man who was battling severe sadness and sorrow. And he tried to cover it all up with these paintings of peace, but inside he was struggling deeply. In fact... Now that he's died, he's been dead for about 10, 11 years, art critics are now kind of re-looking at his work. And what they're noticing is that there's a theme that you've got these peaceful settings, but in almost all of the cottages and the churches and the schoolhouses, um, there is always either a hearth or some candelabras burning in the house. And the, the flames are abnormally bright, more than you would get from a candle or from a fireplace. And art critics are now looking at it and they're saying, I wonder if he was trying to tell us something. That he felt maybe that all around him were these peaceful settings, but yet inside the house was burning from the inside out. And I wonder if many of you today, you look around and you're like, man, everybody looks like their life, they have it all together. But here I am, it feels like my house is burning from the inside out. You see, one of the things, we, that's what sadness can feel like. But one of the things we learn from the Psalms is that you can't overcome your emotions. Um, you can't deal with your emotions properly by keeping them hidden or by imagining that you're, the, that you're the only one because you're not or pretending that your emotions aren't real or they aren't valid or they aren't important. You must be honest about what you feel. You must be honest about your sadness. You have to be honest with yourself and you must be honest with God. And that is exactly what the psalmist does in Psalm 42. The, the, psalm, the title is, uh, Psalm 42 is titled, if you look in your Bible, if you have the titles above the psalms, it's often titled, Why Are You Cast Down, O My Soul? It's the psalmist speaking to his own soul. Why are, what's wrong with my soul? And it says it's written to the choir master. It's a mascal of the sons of Korah. I'll get back to that in a moment. But it says this, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As the deadly wound, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, I love the honesty of the Psalms. Uh, there is something raw and just authentic about the Psalms. Uh, this psalm writer, he tells us exactly what sadness feels like. Verse 5, he says, sadness feels like I've been cast down. Verse 3, my tears have been my food. Verse 7, he says, it feels like I'm drowning. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Verse 11, he simply says, I'm in turmoil. And the psalmist begins by saying, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now, that's a pretty popular verse. Um, we, if you go to Etsy, you'll find it printed on coffee mugs and T-shirts and pillowcases. Um, uh, in, in, we've got that beautiful song. I, I grew up in church singing, As the deer panted for... You remember that song? Um, and, and, and it's easy for us to think this is a cute psalm, cozy psalm that makes us feel all warm and fuzzy, but this in reality is a desperate cry from a desperate man who is thirsty for something more in his life. He, you understand that the, the, the psalm writers who wrote this, they lived in a desert land. Water was scarce. It wasn't, you just turn the tap. Like, you couldn't find water. It was hard to find, and it's hot. And, and there's no shade. And you can be dehydrated so quickly. And if you've ever been just really dehydrated, you'd know how much you long for something to drink. And that's what this psalmist is saying. He's saying, I'm sad, my soul is empty, and I'm longing for something to quench the thirst. As the deer pants for the water. I imagine a skinny, dehydrated, malnourished deer roaming, looking for something to drink. This is not a cute metaphor. It's a desperate cry from a desperate man in a desperate and weary land who is dying of thirst. Sadness can feel like this. You're so thirsty for something, but you can't seem to get a drink that satisfies you. So where does the psalmist turn? Where does he how does he pray? Uh, what we see in this man is a man fighting for hope. And at the beginning of the psalm, it says it is a maskil of the sons of Korah. So maskil is a pretty difficult word to translate. Scholars disagree on its precise meaning, but most agree that it has to do with wisdom or instruction. So maskils are a song of instruction. So this song is instructing us on how to deal with our sadness. It also says it's from the sons of Korah, which means it wasn't written by a single person, but a group of uh, sons. So it's like the, a boy band, like the Jewish Jonas Brothers, or like the Hebrew Hanson. You know, like that's what I'm imagining. But they got together, they wrote this song of instruction 
for people who are sad. And so we look at Psalm 42, and we have to understand, we have to know and believe that it contains wisdom for us when we're sad. And the first thing they teach us, at least that I see, is this, that we must, in our sadness, affirm God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is a big theological word that simply means to affirm the truth that God is in control. If you notice the psalmist's words, you'll see that he contradicts himself all through the psalm. And there's a disconnect between what the psalmist knows and what the psalmist feels. What he knows is this, verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. Amen. Hallelujah. You know, God is with me day and night. That's what he knows to be true. But he says, this is what I feel. The very next verse. I say to God, why have you forgotten me? So what is it? Is God with him day and night, or has God forgotten him? Well, he certainly feels alone and forgotten. That feeling is very real, and many of you know that feeling. When suffering comes, when sadness sets in, uh, when depression keeps you from wanting to get out of your bed, it feels like God is a trillion miles away if he's even there at all. We all know this feeling. He says, God, where are you? Why have you forgotten me? But he also clings to what he knows to be true. God is with me day and night. I feel this way, but I believe this. And in your sadness, in your depression, in your sorrow, when your feelings of, abandon, of God's abandonment, feelings of the silence of God are so strong, you must affirm to yourself what you know to be true. That God is good, that he loves you, he is with you, and that he controls the winds and the waves, even if in the moment you feel like he's no, not there. In verse 7, the psalmist says, God, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Did you hear what he just said? He just said that he feels like the winds and the waves of life are crashing all around him, and he says they're in God's hands. He says, no matter my circumstances, God, I trust that you are in control, that you are sovereign. Even the waves that overtake me are coming from your hands. He's affirming God's sovereignty, that God is in control even of the, the hard things that come into our lives. And for some of you, that's hard to fathom, this idea that God holds the wind and the waves in his hands, and yet he may still allow them to crash over us for a season. And we can ask, does this mean that God allowed this thing that's making me sad to happen to me? Does this mean God is responsible for my sadness? And that is one of the deepest most philosophical questions when you can, that you can ask when it comes to faith. And I don't fully understand the question, nor do I fully have an answer. But I want you to know this. The idea of God's sovereignty, the, the, the truth that God is over all things, it's like hard candy. We got Jolly Ranchers at the Next Steps table. You can grab those on your way out. If you try to bite down on a Jolly Rancher all at once, it will break your teeth. But if you savor it, it is very sweet to the taste. And, the, and a theology, a doctrine of God's sovereignty is the same way. If you try to bite down on it and try to understand it all at one time, it's just going to break your teeth. But if you savor the truth that God is sovereign, it will become one of the sweetest truths in your life. Whenever I feel a deep sadness coming on in my life, it can sometimes just feel like God's against me. I'm like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why have you abandoned me? Why are you silent? And I can begin to despair in those moments. But when I consider that God is in control, when I, when I begin to entertain the thought 
that possibly God is using or allowing the pain in my life and the uncertainty in my life to do a work within me that is for my good and his glory, then I start to open my hands a little bit and go, okay, God, maybe there's something you're wanting to do in my life through sorrow that cannot happen otherwise. I cling to uh, something Jesus said when people asked, uh, there was a man in John chapter 9 who was born blind. And people were like, what did this guy do to deserve that, God? What did his parents do to deserve being blind? And Jesus says, he was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And John chapter 9 doesn't really explain what Jesus means there. It just kind of leaves us to go, man, sometimes God allows things into our lives when the whole purpose is that the good, glorious works of Jesus would be on display in our lives through it. And we don't always know what God is doing in our lives when he allows pain and sadness into it. But by reading the scriptures, we can be assured that God is good and that he is sovereign, that he controls the winds and the waves, and nothing in this world happens to those he loves apart from the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. I don't always understand it, but when I'm able to trust that God is good and he is in control, it gives me hope even in the most hopeless situations. And so you say, I I have a hard time with thinking that God can be in control. of. What's the alternative? What's the alternative that God is not sovereign? That doesn't, uh, that he doesn't have any control over our pain? That would lead me to even greater despair. So I trust, trust and I cling to the truth that God is sovereign. Robert Louis Stevenson once told a story of a ship caught in a terrible tempest. And so the hurricane winds and driving rain and waves are threatening to split the ship in half and uh, the sailors are all panicking and they think that destruction is certain. And in the midst of the terror, one daring man decides to pull himself up the slippery stairs up to the top deck where he could get to the captain of the ship. Rain is pouring down, beating down, and he gets to the top of the deck and he sees the captain of the ship standing there piloting the ship. And the captain looks over and sees him and gives him a smirk. And the man went back down below deck and they said, what's going on? He had all this this new confidence. And he said, I have seen the face of the captain and he smiled at me. All will be well. And so when the sadness and the storms of life hit you and you feel like you are being drowned, like the psalmist says, the winds and the waves are overtaking me. Look to the captain. Is he smiling? Psalm 42, verse 8 says, yes, indeed, he is. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast, which means never-ending, always certain love, and by night, his song is with us. So we affirm God's sovereignty. In the tempest, in the storms, we look up, and our God, our creator, our sustainer is smiling. But we also, we affirm God's sovereignty, but we also remember his past faithfulness. The psalmist says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. I love that sentence. The theology of that sentence. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. As you pour out your soul, what must you remember? He said, how I used to go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. This psalmist, in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of their sorrow, looks back to a previous time when they worshiped God and they felt his presence. Listen, God may feel distant 
in the moment. But by remembering past experiences with God, you can be reminded that joy is possible because you had it before. Jared Wilson writes, he says, look, you may sing now in a place of darkness, but you once sang in a place of wonderful light. Do you remember that? It was real. It happened. You shouted gladly. You sung in praise. What might this tell you to do now? Don't avoid the assembly of the church. Don't cultivate solitude in your darkness. Stay in community. Engage in worship whether you feel what you are singing or not. Don't just remember those past days with lament, but remember them with hope. Are you hurting today? Are you sad? Does it feel like there's no hope? Look back to the times when God was faithful. And let those memories give you hope that you will experience God's goodness and his presence again. This is why it's important to have a journal or to take notes in your Bible. I know some people, they get tattoos after seasons of God's faithfulness. The Israelites put up stones to remember them. People build monuments to remember what God has done so that you can look back and you can see God's faithfulness in the past so that you can believe that joy is possible on the other side of your sorrow today. Third thing that we learn from this psalm is that we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We've got to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. One of the biggest dangers when sorrow and depression overcome our lives is that we begin to be absorbed with self-pity. I don't know about you, but that's where I go when I get real sad. Woe is me. No one understands me. I'm all alone. It'll never get better. It'll always be like this. And we resign ourselves to the depression and resign ourselves to the sorrow and the sadness. And what we do is we make ourselves victims of our own feelings. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great British preachers of the 20th century, said that when we are overwhelmed with sadness, it is often, not always, but often because we are listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. He says, we listen to the voice in our head that tells us nothing but despair. He says, but the psalmist in Psalm 42 is not content to let the voice in their head do all the talking, so the psalmist decides to talk back. Verse 5, he says, he's talking to himself. He's talking to his soul. He says, why are you downcast on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He's saying there's a soul inside me that is rattling around, that's fighting, and it's tossing, and it's turning. And he says, soul, why are you cast down, and why are you in turmoil inside of me? And then he preaches the gospel to his soul. He says, hope in God, for I will again praise him, because he is my salvation and he is my God. This psalmist, his soul says, I want answers. And the psalmist preaches right back to his soul. He says, put your hope in God. God is sovereign, he is good. He's been faithful before and he'll be faithful now. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when you are sad, you must preach to yourself like this. Say, listen, self. I ought to make this all just as an exercise. Repeat after me. I'm not gonna do that. Are you sad? Is your soul cast down? Preach to yourself like this. Say, listen, self. If God is for you, Who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Who shall bring any charge against you as God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn you? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and he is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for you now. Who shall separate you, soul, from the love of Christ? See, we've got to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. We can't rely on K-Love Radio or me or your small group leader to preach the gospel to yourself. You've got to know what the gospel of Jesus is, grab a hold of it, and learn to preach it to yourself daily. Preach the good news that Jesus has broken your chains of sin, sickness, sadness, Satan, death, and hell itself. You must stop listening to the lies of the enemy and the fears of your own heart. And talk back to yourself and tell yourself what is true. And when you do it, don't do like my kids and blather and mumble. Don't equivocate. Speak clearly to yourself. Take hold of yourself and preach. Proclaim great, glad tidings of great joy to your soul. Preach to yourself that you are loved by God and that Christ has died in your place because of his great love for you. Preach to yourself that the very Spirit of God lives in you and is guaranteeing your salvation. Preach to yourself that Jesus himself is your advocate and he pleads his own blood in response to every charge that is brought against you. Preach to your depression that its days are numbered. It will not be the last word over your life. Even if you should, God forbid, have sadness till your dying breath, your sadness will, in the end, be vanquished for all eternity when you are enter into everlasting joy with God our Creator and Father. Your sadness will not have the final word over your life. Christ won. Christ will win. You will outlast your sadness because Christ in you, the hope of glory, will outlast it. Amen. Preach that to yourself. The psalmist ends Psalm 42, I love this, the same way he started. He said, why are you cast down, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. He finishes the same way he starts. It's like the chorus of the song. He finishes the same way he starts. Um, it, 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 which means he sings this song, he lays his heart out to God, but in the end he still feels the sadness. Like this psalm writer is not telling us that, hey, pray this psalm and sadness is lifted. He finishes the psalm and he's still fighting for the hope that he was fighting for in the very beginning. It's a bittersweet ending, but I think it actually gives us hope because it's realistic. Because we know that this world isn't perfect. We know that our lives don't always have a neat little bow tied to them. Some things will require a constant battle, a fight for joy in the midst of sorrow and depression but we still fight. But here's what I love most about this psalm. Verse one. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. What's making the psalmist sad? We don't know. It could be that he lost someone he loves. It could be that he's in, or the group of brothers, or whatever, they're in a season of oppression. It could be that something sad is in their life. But their hope, their longing is not for the circumstances of their lives to be fixed. Because they recognize that circumstances can change and they can go. But in the end, what we long for more than anything is God himself. He says, I'm not just thirsty for relief from the pain. 
what I need is God himself. And we've been talking throughout this series that feelings, they're not bad. Feelings are, they're God-given. Sadness is not necessarily a bad thing. It's what we do with our sadness. It, a sad, our feelings are indicators that we, we long for something greater. And when we're sad, it is a reminder to our soul that what we long for more than anything is the only one and only thing that can satisfy our deepest thirst, and that's God himself. So when you're sad, realize that your sadness can actually be the very thing that moves you toward the heart of God and toward his love and his comfort. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. You know, Christianity is the only religion that dares to say that God knows exactly how we feel because he has experienced it with us. When we want to shake our fists at God and say, God, why don't you come down here and feel what this feels like? Our faith reminds us that this is exactly what God has done. In Gethsemane, Jesus said, my soul has been surrounded with sorrow. And he wept, and he wept, and he wept, and he wept until drops of blood sweat from his forehead. Jesus knows sorrow. He knows your sorrow. His disciples knew sorrow as well. When Jesus was crucified and was placed in the tomb, that was a dark time. That was a sad time. And the disciples lost hope. But on Sunday, Easter Sunday, after his crucifixion, Mary Magdalene went to his tomb, and John 20 says she did it while it was still dark. And she found that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was there to wipe away her tears. See, Jesus does his greatest work in the dark. And you may feel that there is darkness all around you, but you must trust that out of darkness comes resurrection. Into darkness, his light shines. And when things look and they feel the bleakest in your life, will you believe that that is what Jesus wants to resurrect? And that he will bring life and light into the dark places. See, because of Jesus, because of the resurrection, every sad thing is coming untrue. We may not have all the answers of how or when, and we may struggle in the meantime, but we have the promise of the coming day where Jesus has promised that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He is sovereign, and we affirm that. He is faithful, and we remember that. And he is alive, and we hope in that. So you can trust him with your sadness. Let's pray. God in heaven, our Father, God, we thank you that... Jesus, that in Jesus you came to this earth and you felt all the pain and the sorrow that this world can throw at us. You endured it for our sake. And uh, I believe it's the book of Colossians says that this you set aside, nailing it to the cross. God, our sadness was nailed to the cross, it was placed in the tomb. And you rose from the grave and you left it in there. And we may feel it today, but we know that there is a day coming where all will be resurrected, all will be made new, and our sadness will be a thing of the past. And we will weep with nothing but tears of joy because we will be in your presence, confident, comforted, and assured that you are good, that you are faithful, and that you are kind, and that all along you are sovereign in our pain and in our sadness. 
And so God, today we, we offer our feelings of sorrow to you and trust that you can give us new life even in the midst of hard circumstances. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.